We've been through uh, two classes. This is our third and final. Uh, that We talked the first time. I said, actually, to talk about heaven, you really need to go back and talk about the creation mandates. And I said that because the tendency is to think, for many people to think that heaven, when you die, we go to heaven. That's kind of the normal way of saying it. And it gives this picture to most people of we're going to go to some spiritual place in the sky and wear robes and kind of wander around in this kind of spiritual state. Uh, but the creation mandate suggests that that's not the way it's going to happen. And, of course, a lot of other scriptures suggest that what's going to happen is we're going to complete the work that began with the mandate that, that was given to us in uh, Genesis 1 and 2, which was to have dominion over the earth. And so with that in mind and with the description that we talked about last week of the new heavens and new earth, <clears throat> we're getting a, a picture of heaven being a place on earth where we will have physical bodies, we will have things to do. We talked about being productive and uh, the kinds of things we might expect. Again, being careful not to speculate too much. But when you start, start thinking about it much, you can't but help uh, going through more questions. <clears throat> and there are a lot of questions that remain. So, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, will there be music? Well, we kind of believe there will be music. But what about secular music? Will any, will any secular music that's not sinful in and of itself, will any of that survive? Will we remember it? Uh, there's a lot of storytelling. Will there be art and drama? Will there be entertainment? Uh, will Bobby Negron have hair? That's probably one of the biggest. <laughs> My boys are going to want to know, will there be motorcycles? Uh, and with that, will there be risk? Will you be able to do risky things? Because if if there's not going to be pain or suffering, then well, how much fun is it to ride a motorcycle if there's not the potential to get hurt? I mean, that's, that's the way a lot of adventure is. Will there be sports? Will there be bucket lists? Will there be space travel? Will there be new technologies? Uh, will we time travel? Is that possible? Uh, what will our families look like? That's a big one. Will you live with your same family? What's it going to be like? like hey, Christy. Uh, are we going to be living near each other, far away? Some people, the prospect of living with their wife is a wonderful thing. Others, that, that they can't picture heaven in the same context. <clears throat> that is not my case. I'm very happy with my wife. I'm very thankful. Um, but again, you can start to speculate on all these things. You're starting to wonder, well, so what will it be like? One thing I did think about, and perhaps this is slightly speculating, but I think for many of us, we think, well, He's going to have to wipe away a lot of our memories in order for us to not think about the sins that we did or sins that we committed. Uh, but I'm afraid that so much of our life and our stories involve sin that I can't believe that that would be the case. It seems to me more likely that we will see our sin in light of God's providence and God's grace. And so not justifying it or even reveling in it, but we'll see it for the heinousness that it is at the same time seeing the big picture of God's redeeming grace and leading us to rejoicing. So, but that's a little bit of a speculation. But again, we have, if we don't think that there is a continuity of consciousness, some kind of continuity of memories, which again, uh, if you take like Hindus, they generally believe that you lose your personality into the oneness of spirit. Or if you're a materialist, you lose your personality into the dirt. Uh, it's the loss of personal awareness and personal self-consciousness. <clears throat> Christianity teaches that there will be a continuation 
of self-consciousness, whether in heaven or in hell. Uh, but this, so I said, we can sit there and speculate, and it raises more and more questions. But why do we ask, ask those questions? Uh, obviously, we want to know what's in store, but at the same time, I think there is a reason that tends to give rise to that. Because I think it's hard to imagine doing anything that's not going to eventually lead to boredom. <clears throat> you think, well, I really like doing this. Okay, but for eternity? You know, you're going to be, if you like to knit, you're going to be able to knit for eternity? Is that really going to be fulfilling for you? Uh, and you can just pick anything else. You know, 100 years maybe, 1,000. Eternity is a long time. And then it also raises other questions about, well, <clears throat> let's say that we finish dominion on the planet. Then what? Are we going to twiddle our thumbs? And it's like, okay, we did the dominion thing, now what? Uh, and it's hard not to think and reflecting on no matter what God gives us. You can talk about golf, you can talk about anything you want, motorcycles. Uh, how is it that you're not going to ultimately be bored? Isaac Asimov said this, As Asimov, whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. And I think that's a sentiment of a lot of people. It sounds like it's going to be boring. Uh, well, we could build bigger buildings. Uh, we could try different activities. But after, I said, a million years or so, it seems like those are going to run out of being interest, interesting. <clears throat> so we might think then of God is going to be like this parent trying to keep his kids busy. Oh, they're just, you know, they're insatiable. They just keep wanting to do things. And then the, and then we're complaining. But I skied on Mount Everest yesterday. I want to go to the Mariana Trench. Well, we went to the Mariana Trench last year. Yeah, but, you know, it's like, really? Is this what it's going to look like, this frustra constant frustration with the stuff that we haven't done or might potentially do? But again, a million years, you can cover pretty much the planet uh, and ex exhaust it. Why is it that we are unsettled about it? Uh, one author, Mark Buchanan, wrote in his book, Things Unseen, um, this, <clears throat> why won't we be bored in heaven? He says, because it's the one place where both impulses to go beyond and to go home are perfectly joined and totally satisfied. It's the one place we're constantly discovering, where constantly discovering, where everything is always fresh and the possessing of a thing is as good as the pursuing of it. And yet where we are, at, uh, we are fully at home, where everything is as it ought to be and where we find undiminished that mysterious something we never found down here. And this lifelong melancholy that hangs over us, that wishing we were somewhere else, somewhere else vanishes too. Our cravings to go beyond is always and fully realized. Our yearning for home is once and for all fulfilled. The ah of deep satisfaction and the aha of delighted surprise meet and they kiss. So again... I relate to this when I was 21, uh, and I was getting ready to go into work. Uh, they, uh, Price, I was with Price Waterhouse, and they said, when do you want to start? And I thought, hmm, give me an option. Uh, how about September? I was graduating in May. And that's when I took, a number of you know that I traveled. So I bought a round-the-world ticket, because <clears throat> I like, I want to see the world. So I bought a round-the-world ticket, goes all the way around the world. You had to be back within 80 days on the Pan Am, it was the Pan Am Airlines, jumped on the plane and just started going around the world. And, and I experienced the same thing. It's like, I can't wait to get to the next place. I'm going to Saipan. There's tanks and cliffs and stuff like that. And then I get there and it's like, yeah, tanks and cliffs, that's kind of cool, but Tokyo, Tokyo, that's going to be cool. 
And then I get to Tokyo, and it's like, oh, this is interesting, but Singapore, whoa, Singapore, that, now that will be. And the whole time, I'm, I'm kind of anticipating the next place, looking forward to the adventure, but also at the same time, I kept thinking, it's going to be great to be home again, you know, just sitting on the front porch, drinking a tea, and being home. So is that common? I, I, I see what he's saying here, this sense of you want some new, you want something refreshing and different. At the same time, you want a certain settledness, and he's saying that he's speculating that that's what heaven will be for us. Uh, so words like angst, lethargy, ascetia, I don't know if you've heard the word ascetia. I was going to actually do it by J term on ascetia this time. <clears throat> I might do it next time. You can look it up. Uh, stagnation, those kind of words, are, they're not going to be part of our vocabulary there. In fact, if anything, it's interesting to think of it as if there's anything that's boring, it's going to be hell. We talk about the same thing day and night and not a good thing day and night, no change. That's a scary thought. But I think maybe we should look at the potential boredom another way. It's not wrong to think about all the potential activities and adventures uh, in heaven. But once those ideas of the physical world have been exhausted and we kind of end up in this mystery, this uh, uh, out-of-focus place that where you're going like, I'm not really sure what's beyond that. <clears throat> I think what we should do is go to God himself, go to God and reflect on him rather than on the stuff, rather than on the adventures, rather than on the things, rather than on the, uh, the places to go, that our attention should go to the Lord himself. If you think about God created the world and everything in it, do you really think if he says that I will bring you to a place where you will be uh, experiencing joy forever, do you think that he's going to get stuck thinking of ways for us to enjoy being with him for eternity. If you think, certainly we could say that he could have done it in a moment if he wanted to. He chose to do it in six days, establishing a pattern for us. But he, he made all, look, think of all the things. I talked about this last week, the fish, the birds. I mean, you go through everything, all these things that he created by the word of his power. And do you think really that he won't be able to do things, he won't be able to create a place in which he would keep us ultimately satisfied and, and full of joy. If we believe that we're going to reach a point of boredom then as well, it's not a shortcoming of God, but our shortcoming of our own understanding of him. So that's what I want us to think about for a moment. Think about what does the Bible tell us about him? There are several places in scripture where we read these uh, moments where the authors kind of just burst out in praise Example, Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. <clears throat> We're told in Psalm 16, 9 through 11, therefore the psalmist, anticipating God, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. And then he has these words, they're some of my favorite in the Bible. In your presence is fullness of joy. It's your right hand or pleasures evermore. So again, I'm kind of transitioning here saying, 
We, go, we can think about all the stuff we'll be doing, places we'll go, activities, all that kind of thing, but there also is a limit to what we can even understand about that. It seems like that stuff will not ultimately satisfy us, and it won't because it's not meant to. God did not design you to be satisfied with stuff. Uh, one quote I've loved by Matthew Henry ever since I read it is he said, God never made a soul so small that all the world could fill it. That's pretty interesting. He didn't make the soul so small that all of the world could fill it. What's going to fill it? Well, only God himself. So when we think of heaven, rather than just trying to think about, oh, I can't wait to do this, I can't wait to go there, those things are not necessarily wrong in themselves. I think we need to adjust our thinking and say, I'm going to be in the presence of the very source of joy. If there's any joy you've experienced in your life, those are just little pinpoints pointing up to the source. He says, in your presence is fullness of joy. That's where your heart can truly be satiated, is in God's presence. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 104, 24 to 25. O Lord, how manifold are your works and wisdom. You have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great. Uh, we could go in. I don't want to spend much time on it, but uh, if you've done much reading or you look at the intelligent design movement, uh, it's fascinating what they're coming up with. When they get into the issue of life, it is not getting simpler, it's getting more complex. And they're opening up what they call Darwin's black box, which used to be Darwin saying, well, it, it kind of like, you know, the natural selection and survival of the fittest, and pop, out comes a, a human being. Uh, well, then they're getting into the box now and saying, we're actually looking to see how life works, and it's not simple. I mean, you see factory systems, delivery systems, defense systems. It goes on and on and on and on, where it just boggles the mind. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to watch it. Recently, there's a, one of their guys, a guy named James Tour, actually gave a challenge. And he said, I'm going I'm to throw this challenge out there if anybody can answer this. And he's been one of the big voices saying, you all keep talking about it, and you all maybe have heard this in the secular literature, uh, we have a pretty good idea of how life started. And James Tour, who's one of the top synthetic chemists in the world, the guy's unreal if you listen to him, <clears throat> he says, you don't have a clue how life got started. You don't have a clue. And he's challenging them. He says, go ahead, show me, just, just show me. And he starts you know, going through this list of things. Show me a polymer. I have no idea what he just said. No one can do it. And he says this over and over. He says, they don't have a clue. They have no idea how life started. And so he actually did a challenge recently where he said, <clears throat> if somebody can show me how life started, I'll tell you what, I'll even give you six different things. I'll just give these to you. You can't account for these six, but I'll even get you started. I'll prime the pump for you. And even then, only one guy responded. Out of all the scientific world, they all were, it was quiet. It was just crickets. No one could answer them. One guy came and he said, he is just stunning. And you think, God created that with a word. You think you're going to be bored in his presence? Jeremiah, he has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. He stretched out the heavens at his discretion. He just does what he wishes. 1 Corinthians 2, <clears throat> we speak of the wisdom of God and a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not... <coughs> Excuse me. I has not seen nor ear heard, 
nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Try to think of, you know, try to be creative. You won't be able to be out-creative out God. And so, again, there's great hope as we think about uh, eternity with them. And uh, when Paul was writing 1 Timothy, he was talking about the wonder and the mystery of Christ. And essentially, as he, he writes along and he's describing the work of Christ, he has to stop. And just he's like he just explodes and he says, Now to the king, immortal, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's just like he couldn't hold it in when he's recognizing what God has done. Now, again, because especially for you younger people, you've been raised in a church where you hear this enough, and it starts becoming like, yeah, 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 I know. I've heard this stuff before. Uh, and so it's, it's sometimes it's hard to, to get a fresh look at it. I'm hoping to bring some of that here to this morning, but some of it's going to be to you, too, to reflect on it and to, to spend time and prayerful thought about it. But perhaps, again, if we start to doubt God's ability to make heaven a place of inexplicable joy <clears throat> and peace and love, uh, maybe we can put our place, a helpful exercise would be to put ourselves in the place of Job. You remember he questioned God's justice. He said, I don't think that God is just and I want an audience with him. And what happened? Job 38 over here. In Job 38, we see God finally comes to him, and it says, who is this who darkens counsel? This is God speaking to Job, by words without knowledge. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. I, I've mentioned this so many times, uh, just how that blows me away when I think, what would it feel like to be Job when God says, prepare yourself? <laughs> That's not... A good start. I mean, from his perspective, it's like, this is not going to go well. I can tell this right now. And God says to him, um, will you, I think it's Job 40, verse 8, one of the questions he asks him is he says, uh, would you indeed indulge my judgment? Would you condemn me that you can be justified? In other words, do you think that I have to come to your level to explain myself to you? Do you think that, you know, that uh, you are in a position to sit in judgment over me? In a similar way, you know, for us to question, will heaven be something that I'm going to really enjoy or not? I'm kind of thinking it through. Uh, is almost like putting God in the dock and saying, well, impress me with what you've got. And we can go through the same questions here and ask ourselves, where were you when God laid the foundations of the earth? Uh, okay, well, I wasn't yet. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. This is God asking Job. Who stretched the line upon it? To whom were its foundations fastened? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? He goes on for three chapters asking questions. And Job is you know, getting a little bit lower with each one, like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, clueless. Um, no idea. And he recognizes through this, who was I to ever question him? I was thinking that, that same, uh, the book Moby Dick <clears throat> is really interesting. If you remember, I heard a guy talking about a, uh, he was doing a uh, description of the book. It's a, a two-session description of the book. It's a book. There's a podcast called Great Books where they talk through great books. It's really good. And he's talking about Job. And in it, he says <clears throat> that he believes that the, the whale, <clears throat> the white whale represents 
that which you can't control. It's, it's the wildness, it's, the, the, it's transcendence, it's the uncontrollable events of life. And in the book of Job, God says, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? It's like he says, can you up the whale and hook it, Job? And of course, again, the answer is no. And it's the same point here. This, um, Captain Ahab is saying, I want to control these events that I'm not in control of. And he says, you can't. You're not able to. The whale takes them off, right? It disappears. I think sometimes we might think of God as, as sort of tame. You know, the, maybe perhaps the, the old man with the beard or, you know, the Santa Claus or just someone who is, you know, predictable in a, in a boring sense of the word, predictable like, yeah, he's probably going to, yeah, he always does this. Um, <clears throat> but can you tame God? I'm not suggesting we think of God as rogue or unpredictable or cavalier, but we need to grasp the weightiness of who he is. His holiness, his goodness, his power, his joy, his creativity are so vastly beyond what we can even imagine. I, think, I wonder if when we're in heaven, we won't be just grasping for words. Uh, I could almost picture saying, I mean, he's really... Really, 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 you know, beautiful. Yeah, I know. I mean, so, he's so, so, uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll have better vocabulary by that, but <clears throat> I think so often we can just sort of generalize God and put him out there as the great power. He's there to help us when we need him instead of being just overwhelmed by who he is. I wonder, too, again, recognizing that I don't want to speculate too much, but will there be, in a sense, even any remorse in heaven? I guess I'd, um, that's a question for another day, but when we're in his presence, are we going to say, what was I thinking? What, why did I not trust him? I mean, what in the world was I doing back there? I don't know if we'll do that or not, but certainly we can kind of think of that now when we reflect on who he is and we think, really, I'm going through life and I'm just taken aback by the circumstances when there's this God who is faithful to me, as we talked about this morning, who is this kind of God. <clears throat> we're very limited and we're, of course, still sinful. So our picture of him can be so distorted. Well, not only where we see the person of God, but as I mentioned, even from, uh, from Psalm 16, we're going to be in his very presence Again, I said, we can think about being bored because we think, well, no matter how much we travel, how much we see, how much we have, there's still this yearning inside us for something more. But God designed us not to find, as I said, our ultimate joy in the stuff, in the events, in the uh, activities of heaven, in the places and all the things, but to be, heaven is not something where he is away from us, kind of throwing toys at us to keep us busy but he is going to be present with us. Uh, <clears throat> Revelation 21.3, I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the earth, first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea, but I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. 
he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself, continuing the verse, God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the promise. That's what should get our blood pumping about heaven, not the stuff. I mean, that's great. But it's him and him with us. Uh, John 14, 3, Jesus said, If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may also be, or that uh, there you may be also. Revelation 7, 15, Therefore they are all there before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits in the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we will be not, we think about just who God is, the person of God, but also the fact that he will be present with us. We will be present with him. Now, again, you kind of think, well, that's true. Um, That should impact me now. That should have some kind of uh, effect on me as I reflect on that, and it should. The problem is we're still sinners. We are busy. we got stuff going on. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about how do we put this in practice, and I want to point out that there has to be an intentionality on our part uh, to reflect on these truths. There has to be a desire to say, I'm going to think about this, I'm going to reflect on this. Two examples of us, Anna took a course in uh, driving with BMW. They had this cool, it wasn't the really cool one, it was a lesser one. It was 75 bucks for teenagers. It was really cool, but it was three hours. Uh, and I talked to the instructor afterwards, and I said, if there's one thing you want the kids to remember out of this class, what would it be? And he, I can't, don't remember the words he used, but this is the words that I had when I was going through my driver's training back a thousand years ago. But he said, we were always told, aim high in steering. Now, if you don't know what that means, it means like if you're on the highway, you don't look right in front of you. You know, it's like, oh, I'm turning, I'm turning, I'm turning. He says, you always want to look at the horizon where you're going, and you will naturally just follow the curve. Uh, If you look at the horizon, you'll still see things in the road. But to focus right in front of you, you'll be a a real inconsistent driver. You'll be jerking people around. You won't be a good driver. You won't see the things ahead. The point is, he says, you want to look ahead, and that takes care of the things in between. Is that not true for us? When we think of heaven and being with God in heaven, when we aim high, and focus on him, then everything else begins to fall into place. If all we're looking for is next week, next month, or the years when I'm going to start having health issues or financial struggles, and you're not aiming high, then you're jerking around in your life. I read the boys an excerpt out of a book uh, on Bitcoin. I'm fascinated by Bitcoin. No, I don't have any, um, but I think it's fascinating. The whole concept is just mind-blowing to me, so... Uh, one of our members here gave me a book and said, here's the best book on Bitcoin. So I'm reading it. It's going into monetary theory. And yesterday I was talking to the boys about it and reading some sections out of it where the same idea. He says there's two types of people. There's the ones that think immediate, immediate gratification, and the ones that think long-term. And it has words for it, and they have different technical descriptions of it. But the idea is, are you the kind of person that can put off now to get that? And I think it's the same idea that effects that causes us to reflect and to act differently in that in-between time. And so with this one, he says, 
think of your future self. <clears throat> now, I've heard that actually used in a dietary context. You know, eat now what you want your 85-year-old Dan to wish you had eaten. I thought, well, that's actually an interesting way to think of it. Eating now for him. Uh, but we could also extend that even beyond death, right? And even the next 20 years. Think of your future self. Where are you going to be? And in light of that, how are you going to live right now? How does that affect you right now? He talks about those who build long-term, who have a long-term perspective, who can delay their gratification now and invest for the future, or those who build wealth and who personally grow. They develop things. They are productive. Richard Baxter said this when he talked about the importance of keeping this idea in front of us. He says, if there be so certain and glorious a rest for the saints, why is there no more industrious seeking after it? One would think if a man did but once hear of such unspeakable glory to be obtained and believed what he heard to be true, he should be transported with the vehemency of his desire after it and should almost forget to eat and drink and should care for nothing else and speak of and inquire after nothing else but how to get this treasure. And yet people who hear of it daily and profess to believe it as a fundamental article of their faith do as little-minded or labor for it as if they had never heard of any such thing or did not believe one word that they hear. Isn't that true? Uh, We can live that way. We live just like this is not going to be our ultimate end. This is what it's all about right now. Grab for the gusto. You know, fulfill your dreams now. Get the most of what you can. And Baxter says, you know, how can this be? Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, <clears throat> I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life and to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Is that your perspective? Is it one of that I need to keep pressing on to that place to go. And then you ask yourself, do I really believe that, <clears throat> that place? And again, if you don't take time to reflect on it and all you're thinking about is tomorrow and the next day, you're losing all the benefits of the long-term perspective brought back to the present. Some passages on how we should live. The Bible does say that we need to have that long-term perspective and why it, and how it can affect us now. A good example... I preached this when I went through 2 Peter, and I love this passage, but he starts describing the end times. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness. This Again, this is Peter speaking. The day of the Lord, this is judgment, will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... What manner of persons are you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Are you thinking about the end of these things? He says, if you do, what does that mean for you right now? He goes on, looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, Peter's continuing, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider the long-suffering of our Lord as salvation, as also when he gives the example of Paul. 
He's saying, therefore, in light of the fact that the earth and the heavens will burn, it will be purged as we talked about, um, be diligent to be found now by him in peace, without spot and blameless. Another example, 1 Corinthians 13, in a chapter on the last times, he says, therefore, this is verse 58, so after he's talked about the resurrection, and now he says, this is the order of things that are to come. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, a familiar passage where it talks about what the dispensationalists call the rapture. But it says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. With that thought, he says, Therefore, in light of the fact that you will always be with the Lord, comfort one another with these words. A great reminder for us. How do you comfort one another with these words? One day we're going to be in heaven. One day we'll be with him. Uh, in in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul's just been describing the temporary nature of our bodies and the temporal things of the world, and he talks about the unseen things, he says, therefore, in light of those, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. In verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So we see here, <clears throat> we're to be pleasing to him. We're also to be evangelists, persuading men, saying, this is coming. <clears throat> in John 14, 1 through 7, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, but also believe in me. And this is where he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, receive you to myself. And so what does he say at the beginning of it is, So don't let your heart be troubled. Even in the context of persecution, it says you can find joy. Luke six twenty two says, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed, your reward in heaven is great, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. You're not unique in that. Be in the presence of the very one who is the source and fountainhead of joy and love and peace and power. <clears throat> there is an article that is written about the Puritans and in it, uh, the description was always one that uh, caught my attention. The guy says, the Puritans were men who derived a peculiar character from the daily contemplation of superior beings and eternal interests. I thought, what an interesting, he says, people that thought they were weird didn't think that when they went to court with them or went to battle with them. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, uh, that's not what I thought. <laughs> I thought these guys were just kind of weird and off. He's, Oh, no, you don't want to go to battle with them. You don't want to go to court with them. You don't want to debate with them. A peculiar character from the daily contemplation of superior beings, God, and eternal interests, the kingdom of God. So what difference does this make to the teenage girl who struggles with her looks and self-confidence, or who feels that she's unloved? What difference does it make to the boy, the teenage boy, who's mocked by his peers because he's not included in the in-crowd? or he's wondering what to do with his life. What difference does it make to the single mom whose husband left her? What difference does it make to the woman who waited too long to have a child and now she faces old age without a family? To the woman who had an abortion? To the man who had an affair and destroyed his family or he's stuck in a job with no future? What difference do these things make to the chronically ill person who sits and watches daily as others go about their business while they're anchored at home in bed or hospital uh, 
unable to enjoy their fellowship? What difference does it make to the elderly saint who's experiencing more and more pain and sees death as the next big event on his horizon? What difference does heaven make? It makes all the difference in the world to every one of those. And if you're not in the list, well, by extension, you are. There's some way in which you are finding this world is not what you thought, what you wished it would be. The relationships are tainted. The stuff that you get just doesn't ultimately satisfy. There's that, what is it? It's heaven. It's God in heaven where you are destined to go if you are one of his people. Listen to the words. I'm going to close with two thoughts, two quotes. One is by Calvin Miller, <clears throat> who wrote this poem. He said, I once, I once scorned every fearful thought of death when it was but the end of pulse and breath. But now my eyes have seen that past the pain, there is a world that's waiting to be claimed. Earthmaker, holy, let me now depart for living's such a temporary art. And dying is but getting dressed for God. Our graves are merely doorways cut in sod. What a neat picture he gives there. Let me close with uh, the words, uh, and perhaps some of you have heard these before, in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Again, Carl's not here, so I can quote Lewis. Uh, If you remember the very last book, and I'm not endorsing everything that Lewis does, and I'm not endorsing all that's in the Chronicles. I know there's some issues there. But he ends this in a a great thought, where where the, uh, the whole series is done, and he's closing it off. And the writer says, for us, this is the end of all the stories. But we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, the world of Narnia that he was describing, all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Father, we recognize we are so far short of understanding what heaven is, even in fully understanding who you are. We have a powerful, all-knowing God. Forgive us for looking to the things of the earth to find our ultimate satisfaction. And help us, Father, to just pry our fingers off of these things of the earth and rather to to direct our attention and our, our passions towards you and towards that day that we look forward to. And in light of that, may we live like those uh, who are looking forward to that final home and that place and time with you. And may that be reflected in our demeanor, in our attitudes, in our relationships. We pray these all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.